Hi everyone, my name's Jennifer. Um, I am a first year ordinant, which means vicar in training. Um, I'm married to Simon and together we're leading the plant coming out of Trinity and going into the land where it's always sun is shining of Cooper's Edge. Um, so it's really great to be here this morning as we kind of start our Advent series. And Chris, the Christmas story is one of those, isn't it? Because it comes round every year, we hear it every year. And it's probably the story that we hear most of all, other than like the Easter story, probably. But my prayer this morning is that for each one of us here, we're going to have hearts that are open and ready to receive fresh revelation from God. The hearts that are open and ready to receive the new thing that he wants to speak in. Because our God is a God of transformation. We know that nothing falls to the ground and is wasted. So even as we look at a familiar passage to many of us in Luke this morning, I just pray that the Holy Spirit is going to be infusing our spirits with the truth of Scripture again. So we're going to focus on my favorite part of the Christmas story, which is Luke 1. And see if you have a Bible, I would really encourage you to have it, or a phone, to have it open in front of you, because we're going to kind of dip in and out a bit. And it is the story of Mary hearing um, the angel bringing her the good news that she was going to have Jesus, and also of Zachariah and Elizabeth, who are told that they're going to have John the Baptist. And we're going to start by looking at Zachariah and Elizabeth. <clears throat> now, this couple are old and they are childless, and they are living within a culture where this would have been a cause of great shame. It's probable people would have mocked them and even questioned what they had done wrong not to have children. And, but as we read in Luke, we hear that they are righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all his commands and decrees blamelessly. They were exemplary law-keeping Jews. Zechariah was a priest. That means he would have been based in his hometown and he'd have had responsibilities for preaching and teaching, but he would also have been part of one of the 24 divisions of priests who were called twice a year to come to Jerusalem to do like specific duties. And that's when this passage takes place. Zechariah is in Jerusalem, and not only is he doing his normal, specific priestly duties, he has been chosen by lot to go into the center of the temple to light incense before the Lord. This is something that probably would have only happened once in his lifetime. So this is where we pick up the passage. We're going to start at Luke 1, verse 10. And then came the time for the burning of the incense. All the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped by fear. You kind of read that and you're like, so would I have been. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he is born. He will bring back many of the people to Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak. They realized he had seen a a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace from the people. So it's thought at the time of this passage, Elizabeth would have been about 60. So way past kind of childbearing years. And we read that this was a prayer. God has heard the prayers they have, they have prayed for a child because they would have been social outcasts. And I often wonder when I'm reading this passage, by this point, were they still praying? Is that, has it got to a stage where they're saying, you know what, it's actually just too late. I'm not, I can't, I can't pray this anymore. It's too hard. It's too painful. I, I kind of lay that down and we need to move on. Or are they continuing to pray, continuing to press in to what God's got for them? I don't think there's a right or wrong way to respond there, actually. It's just a pondering. And here is her husband being told at 60 that they're going to have a baby. They're going to have a son. And Zechariah is a priest, so he knows that the son this angel is telling him about is not just anyone, but is someone who had been prophesied in Isaiah. He is the one who is going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah, on hearing what the angel is speaking, after all these years of waiting, his response How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. I'm sure you're all far wiser than me, but I quite often have those moments where the words tumble out my mouth before my brain connects with what I'm actually saying. And it's usually my first reaction and then out goes the words and then I'm trying to claw them back, but they're gone. And I wonder if that's kind of Zachariah's reaction in this moment. He's heard this incredible news 
And out has come a reaction of, give me a sign, prove it. There's all these things that stand in the way this can't be. I wonder what would have happened if he had just taken a moment and stood and thought. But as a result, he gets the sign he asks for, doesn't he? He's silent until the child is born. Now let's kind of leave Zechariah and Elizabeth there for a moment, and we're going to turn our attention to Mary. So Mary is a cousin of Elizabeth, and we're going to read on verse 26 through to 38. Lots of Bible this morning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I love a nativity play. Like, they're really cute. Like, sometimes really bad, but usually really cute. But actually, I think our kind of image of the Christmas story can be slightly distorted by this image of, like, a little girl on the stage sweeping the floor and an angel in an ill-fitting halo bounding in and saying, don't be afraid, and her going, okay, I'll have God's baby. (gasps) (laughs) Kind of what happens, because you need to give them as few lines as possible. (gasps) From someone who was a kid's pastor for 10 years. (laughs) But remember, Mary was probably 13 or 14 at the time. She wasn't yet married, and an angel comes and tells her she's going to have a baby who's going to be God's son. The courage and trust this young woman showed in God is remarkable. In a culture where childlessness was mocked, to have a child out with wedlock was unthinkable. At this point, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. They're engaged. Therefore, if she is accused of adultery, that is a crime punishable by death. And yet, what's her response? Like Zachariah, does she say, I need a sign? 
Show me. It can't happen because of these things. No. Her response at first, sound, at first hearing sounds quite similar, but it's actually very different. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? This isn't her doubting. This is simply her asking for the practicalities. How will this be since I am a virgin? How will it happen? And then the angel tells her, and her response I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. The courage and trust to say yes in that moment is outrageous. But she gave the Lord her yes. So today, looking at these kind of two passages, I want to pick out three characteristics that I think God is looking for in his people. So I think God is looking for people who are first available, people who trust, and people who will wait. These three things, people who are available, people who trust, and people who will wait. You can tell I've been at Vicar Factory for a whole term. I've just realized this, and that I've done a three-point sermon. It's obviously rubbing off what they're trying to do. Um, So let's start with people who are available. So both Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary, for all their differences, are actually very ordinary, normal people. Zachariah, yes, is a priest, but he's one of about 8,000 priests at the time. Mary is just an ordinary girl waiting to be married. But God uses them. Um, Mary in particular, God chooses Mary to bring his son into the world. God could have used a queen. God could have used someone who didn't need to travel for a census, who was more stable. God could have picked someone of higher standing, or he could have picked someone a bit older, a bit wiser, but he chooses Mary. This is what um, N.T. Wright says about God's choice of people. God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith and devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. I love that phrase, holding themselves half ready. (laughs) Holding themselves ready with a mixture of half faith and devotion. You know, unlike Elizabeth, this wasn't something Mary had hoped for and longed for. This wasn't the fulfillment, well it was the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise, but it wasn't the fulfillment of her long-awaited promise. And sometimes life's a bit like that, isn't it? We're kind of going on a trajectory, then boom, along comes a curveball and throws us. It might be a worldly thing, like a redundancy at work, or a change in family circumstances, or needing to move area suddenly. Or it might simply be because God has told us to change direction and we know because we know because we know in our gut and through other people's help and reading scripture that this is the direction God's telling us to go in and there has to be a sudden change. And that was Mary in that moment. 
And I wonder if one of the reasons Mary was ready to give her response of yes was because she had the testimony of her cousin. By this point, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Mary will have known that God has given her a child in her 60s. She will know that God has done a miracle, so she's able to say, okay, God, do it again and use me. I'm ready for a miracle. And that is why testimonies and sharing the good news of what God is doing and the little things and the big things are so important because it raises our faith and it gets us ready with this mixture of half faith and devotion to say yes when we're asked. Sometimes we don't get a lot of notice. And God is so good at using the people who other people would put to the side. God is so good at seeing the outsider. We see that all through scripture. Mary was not the obvious choice, but neither was Moses. He had a lisp and he was called to go and speak to Pharaoh. Esther, as a woman in her society, really didn't have much say, but she was chosen by God to go to the king and save her people. She said, yes, the disciples were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, like the heavies of their day, all gave their yes to Jesus. But so often, I think we think it's someone else's yes that is needed that there is someone better qualified or positioned or that is a better fit for, that God couldn't possibly want or use us. Eugene Peterson says this about the story of Mary. I love this quote as well. Most of us, most of the time, feel left out. We don't belong. Insiders know the ropes. They're in a club from which we are excluded. But with God, there are no outsiders. Jesus includes those who typically were treated as outsiders. Women, common laborers, the radically different, the poor. He will not countenance religion as a club. You see, Zechariah gave the angel this list of reasons why it couldn't be them. Mostly that they were too old, whereas Mary just said yes, despite her knowing that in saying that yes, it would actually make her an outsider. She was okay with that because it was obedience to God. You know, there's that really cheesy Christian coaster, God doesn't need your ability, he just needs your availability. It is seen over and over in scripture. And so often we think that we can't, God doesn't need our yes because someone else will do it because they're a better fit, because they fit in more. And here's my controversial bit for the day. I think church is the place where most people feel like they don't fit. Be it through family circumstance, be it through personality, be it through class, be it through gender. And see if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I just don't feel like I fit in church. 
I bet you there's half a dozen other people sitting around you who feel the same way. Because Jesus is good at using those who feel they don't fit, good at using the outsider, good at using the one that other people would dismiss. I am, it'll come as no surprise to lots of you, have been described as quirky throughout my life. Uh, And there's lots of reasons for that. And it has, at times, I just feel like I don't fit in church. I feel like I rub up against church. I feel like I'm too loud or stand out too much. Or I'm a woman, which can be an inconvenience at times. Or, um, yeah, I found it quite hard to feel like I fit in church. And other places, but especially churches. And over the last couple of years, God's been doing this undoing in me to show me that if I fitted more in church, I wouldn't be able to do the ministry that he's called me to do. Because it's through not fitting, it's through the slightly rough edges that God's created me with, that I'm able to rub up against it. That I'm able to um, speak truth where other people might not see truth. It's where I'm able to go into um, an estate and be able to speak the good news of Jesus because I feel more at home there than I do here. And if you're here this morning thinking, I love Jesus, but I find church hard, I feel like I don't fit, I tell you to go to the story of Mary and see how God uses people who don't fit. God uses them powerfully. He uses the outsider. He uses the one who others wouldn't necessarily give a chance to. Okay, second point. We need to be people who trust. This one's really short. I think the beauty in this passage comes when the two protagonists meet together. And as we just read down a bit, in verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I think this is my top five Bible verses. Blessed is she who believed the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So we've positioned ourselves available and ready to say yes to God. And then we need to trust him to do the rest. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. God who is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine, keeps his promises. And like I said before, I wonder if one of the reasons Mary was able to say yes to the angel was because of the testimony of Elizabeth. She knew that God had kept the promise to Elizabeth, therefore would keep his promises to her. Okay, and finally... We want to be a people who wait, who will wait. So this story here is the fulfillment of a promise that was spoken probably about 750 years before. God spoke that he was going to send John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, and he spoke of the coming Messiah in Isaiah, which was about 750 years before this passage. And then even within this bit, 
Zachariah and Mary had visitations promising them a child, a promise that could not be immediately seen, but had to be waited on, both for conception and then the nine months for the child to arrive. You know, so often as we read scripture, we see of people positioning themselves, saying yes to God, then trusting that the promise will be fulfilled, but then having to wait. And it's in the waiting that can be uncomfortable and hard and painful. You know, the Israelites walked around the desert for 40 years waiting on the promised land. Jesus died on the cross on the Friday, and then there was a pause on the Saturday before he rose again on the Sunday. Even now, as a church, we are in a period of waiting because Jesus has said, I will come again, and we are waiting for that day. And today is the first Sunday of Advent, a season of waiting and preparation. Now, I love Christmas, like really, really love Christmas. And I've done quite a lot, and I'm thinking of why I love Christmas, other than obviously Jesus, is because um, I love the celebration. I love the parties and the markets and the friends and family and the people. It's an extrovert dream. Like, I love it. But I wonder if sometimes we go to the celebration of Christmas but bypass the season of Advent. We bypass the season to wait and to prepare ourselves for it. It's like this roller coaster. Um, that's Blackpool, where I used to go on holiday every year. Um, and it used to be, for ages, the tallest roller coaster in the UK. But I wonder if, with Christmas, we kind of start the ride right up at that top part and we just go off, wee and have a lovely time, right? It's still fun, it's still good. But we miss the, cl- slow, the, cl- the slow climb up, the cranking of the chains, because that was not that secure roller coaster, the cranking of the chains, the, the shut eyes, and you're kind of peeking out to see how, how high you've come, the expectation, that knot, that ball of anticipation rising within you until you get to the top, and there's always a pause before you go and enjoy the fun of the ride. That is Advent. Advent is the slow creep up, the anticipation, the preparation, the waiting. But do you think that it's a surprise that we kind of try and bypass a season of waiting in a culture which is rubbish at it? In a culture where Yes, as Brits, we are very good at queuing in M&S and waiting there. But we'd much prefer the speed of Amazon Prime. We'd much prefer, um, rather than waiting till Sunday at 9pm to watch the next episode of our favourite show, to go on to Netflix and get to binge the whole lot, show after show after show, quick, quick, quick. No waiting, no anticipation. I literally remember... I can't, it was, don't mock me, it was the bill. I used to love the bill. All right. 
I used to like, remember waiting for like 8 p.m. on a Wednesday when it was on to watch the next episode. That's not there in our society anymore. And the thing about the seasons that we have in church life is that they allow us on a micro level to learn some of the truths and disciplines that can be applied to the bigger seasons of life. Like seasons where we might be waiting, where seasons where we might feel like we're walking in darkness, seasons where we are longing for the light to come. Advent, on a micro level, gives us the skills and disciplines and truths of scripture to be able to sit in those times and apply them bigger. So is it surprising in a culture which says, go, 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 you don't need to wait for anything, that it becomes quite jarring when God says, thank you for your availability. Yes, you're available. Yes, you trust in the promises, but wait. That is quite jarring. Because seasons of waiting are never intended to be passive. They're intended to be times to prepare. We have um, a quite quirky dog, Fergus, and um, he'll only drink water outside. <laughs> he'll only drink rain water. Um, so we've got bowls and stuff around the garden, like he's not neglected. But as a good dog owner, if I'm going out, I still feel obliged to leave a bowl of tap water in the kitchen, which I know he won't touch. And sometimes I forget about this bowl of water and there's a bowl of stagnant water sitting in my kitchen. And what happens if you've got a bowl of stagnant water sitting in your kitchen is that water, did you know, manages to go quite fisty. It kind of gets this lime of grime on top of it. I think fisty might be a Scottish word. Yeah, kind of get what I mean? Grimy, yucky water because it's not been stirred, it's not been activated. It's sat there still. And in seasons of waiting, when we just sit passively waiting for the fulfillment of promise or in Advent, if we just sit passively waiting till we can get to Christmas so we can take down the decorations on the the 26th, we're gonna get stagnant. Seasons of waiting and preparation are meant to be there to stir us, are meant to be there to prepare us. They're meant to be there to give us time to lean into the promise of God and say, yes, and I trust you over and over and over again. And I say this, not, I do not, I know this is not easy. And I know for some of you sitting here today, you're like, I feel the Lord has promised me this and this season of waiting has been going on years and it's hard. And it's hard. But friends, let me tell you, I truly believe that it's in the tension between having received the promise from God and waiting for for the fulfillment that we learn the most about the character of God, about who he is and who we are to him. But it's a tension. It's a tension as we wait. And it's the act of over and over and over again saying, Yes, I'm here. 
Yes, I trust you. I might not feel it, but I'm choosing to trust you and I will wait. And this Advent, amongst the noise and the half bad nativities and the carols and the, and the fun, and it is fun, but in this Advent season, can we learn what it is to wait? Can we carve out of bits of our week in order to let the anticipation of Christmas rise within us? Could it be as simple for you and your family as reading through the Christmas stories in the gospel? Could it be lighting a candle every night and just sitting in the presence of the Lord for 10 minutes? What does it look for you this Advent to be learning to be part of a people who wait in the tension? So, from this beautiful passage of scripture, we see people who give their yes, even though it makes them an outsider, even though it's hard. We see people who give their yes to God. We see people who trust in a promise that doesn't make sense. And Mary standing in the testimonies of others and saying, do it again. And we see the importance as God's people of being comfortable in the waiting, in the tension, in the creaking up the roller coaster. (laughs) 